Hi everyone, this is Mike Ragsdale with 30A. I have a very special guest here today on 30A Radio. Uh, the Beatles, they're not the guest, but they did release their White Album in 1968. And of course, it's uh, widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential works of art of all time. Um, the second song on that album was entitled Dear Prudence. And that song was written by John Lennon about our friend and a 38 local, Prudence Sparrow Bruns. Prudence has now written a book, after all of these years, entitled Dear Prudence, The Story Behind the Song, and it's available for sale now on Amazon.com. But before we get to the song, and perhaps much more fascinating than the story of the song is actually the story of, of Prudence herself. Um, the book is wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, you're welcome. So your childhood, um, from an outsider's perspective, I mean, it's almost magical. It seems almost like you were living the the American Camelot. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're you're in Hollywood. You've got Hollywood parents. You're living in Beverly Hills. Right, right on Beverly Drive. Yeah, and and your your father was was a, a famous uh, director and producer. Yeah. Your mother was Jane in the Tarzan series for right, ten years. Right, um, right. Your sister's Mia Farrow. You're, right. you're, you really were surrounded by celebrity your entire youthful life. Yes. And and so how much of that truly was magical versus just the magic that every child sees in in, in childhood, you think? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think, uh, you know, really the magic is what a child sees. I mm -hmm. mean, everybody, I, not everybody, I mean, not everyone has an ideal childhood, you know, when they're young. Mm -hmm. But if you do, it it does have magic to it. And part of the magic was... My mother coming from Ireland was magical. Mm -hmm. She she had an Irish kind of lilt to her voice, and she would tell us these wonderful stories about goblins and uh, fairies and water babies. And mm -hmm. uh, that added to it where she really triggered our imagination in such a way that I think I had one foot in the imaginary world to one foot in the regular world. More than most children, I think. Maybe not most children in Ireland. But she had tales of things that, you know, happened where she saw banshees and, mm. and different things like that. Um, that were I believed. And so I believed these, you know, the world was magical. Uh, it, but it was hard to see it. You had to, you know, sort of be tuned into it, which is what she told us. Mm -hmm. So there was that, but there was also, you know, the magic of being a child. And that was very, very wonderful. My early childhood, I, I, as I say in the book mm -hmm. and show you, was was wonderful, even though we had things that other children didn't have, like the movie star bus that would come down Beverly <laughs> Drive and we'd all perform for it. But it was more from a child's point of view, the way things were. I didn't realize that it was different for anybody because the children that went to the school that I went to, which was Beverly Hills Catholic School, were Lucille Ball's kids, were, um, uh, let's see, there were uh, Dean Martin's kids, mm -hmm. there was Ricardo mm -hmm. Monobon's kids, Jeannie Crane. There were a lot of very famous, you know, more famous than ours, mm -hmm. a more high-profile pro kids. So I just figured, you know, this is the way it is. I didn't mm -hmm. think about of it. Of course. I didn't think about it. Until in Spain, when we were in Spain, then people would come up and say, you're from Hollywood. It was the first sort of 
you know, distance I put between my life and where I was coming from, where I started looking at it. Oh, I'm from Hollywood. What does that mean? Kind of thing. Right. And so your mother um, was kind of uh, Irish aristocracy in a way. In that, She in that, was. Her, she her, was from a wealthy family in Ireland. And her parents were not entirely thrilled about her coming to America no, and coming they to weren't. Hollywood. No, they absolutely weren't. Um, but she was determined. Mm-hmm. And um, she was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And she came. Was it her encounter with the, the gypsies uh, that were transversing across the country, or was that your grandmother? I can't remember. That was my mother. That was your mother. Um, certainly that whole encounter, which I write about, played a major role for her all through her life, because I told you how she carried in the scapula mm-hmm. that song of the gypsies that she called it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and most or all of what the gypsy told her did come to pass. Mm-hmm. So that um, that did play a role for her. That probably did. I, I, I don't know. She also was a, a free spirit. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even in school, she went to uh, Sacred Heart School in, in England, mm-hmm. uh, outside of London or in London. And Vivian Lee was one class below her. Mm-hmm. And it was all nuns, Sacred Heart nuns. And Vivian Lee's family, it was a boarding school. Her family was from, her. they were in British England. You know, British India. Mm -hmm. They were military. And so she was there, and they became close friends because they were the prettiest girls in the school. Mm -hmm. My mother had a picture of it. I don't know who got it, of her class when she was, you know, one of the class pictures. Mm -hmm. And Vivian Lee is in there, you know, as a young girl. Neither of them knew they would be great stars. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, they were just girls. Uh, you know, there in this British school. But my mother was particularly at that age in in those years, very wild kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. she was a free spirit even then. She was in trouble a lot and all of that. Well, and I think your stories and your family life and and your parents' life... like everyone's life is is a series of ups and downs, uh, roller coasters. So you went through the heyday of truly living um, the Beverly Hills fantasy. I mean, your your dad's friends are people like John Wayne and, right, and, right, and True, right. uh, coming out and hanging out on Sundays and the, the, right. the, the, having uh, philosophical discussions with all all of these famous uh, Hollywood icons. Too, at some point, uh, as you approached your teenage years, it began to slip away somehow. Yes, it did, yeah, and and, uh, and and I entered the sixties uh, with a passion, uh, mm-hmm. and the sixties coming of age during that time. I think that a lot of people who've read the book have told me, uh, who are my age and younger, but they can relate to what I went through mm-hmm. because a lot of them went through it in their their. Fr- fashion also but i think i went through it to the extreme because we didn't have parental supervision really Mm -hmm. so my mother you know had to work at a certain point with when my father got sick and then died and she had six kids to support and my father not being well enough when he was alive and i was becoming a teenager was not able i mean he'd never done anything taking care of these younger kids so we kind of um we were able to really give ourselves over to some of these things that you know kids went through but they couldn't go through to the extreme because they you know they had more parental supervision but they did go through them in some ways you know i i I thought you were kind of going through your terrible teens at the same time america in some way was going through its 
terrible teens, a sense of, of rebellion against authority, a sense of... Right. Uh, it was a collective for a lot of us. Uh, I think I you know, say collective identity crisis because we came of age with the H-bomb, mm. which was major. I mean, and during the 50s when we were young, we had two very extreme things happening. One is we had, you know, the air raids that would go off every... Uh, one Friday a month, and mm-hmm. we'd have to all go, you know, under our desks if we were at school. And that was very real. We also had coming with that where we were always asked to be the parents take the children out of the room while they discuss the Cold War issues. So we had that, you know, primarily the H-bomb, though, where we we would be destroyed with a war. It mm-hmm. wasn't like a regular war where, where many of us would die. This meant a serious kind of annihilation maybe of humanity. But then there was also the other extreme where they were trying to, you know, where the parents had gone through World War II, Mm. you know, people like Walt Disney and things, and they were trying to save us from any kind of negativity. So we had all the Walt Disney kind of endings where everything, there was nothing bad really could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, everything always had a happy ending. So the combination of a, of the two kind of brought a rift in a certain way, I think. Mm-hmm. And that created, um, you know, just, it just, it just created a, a, a very idealistic group of people who were also very cynical at the same time. So when, when, you know, Kennedy came along, uh, there was this tremendous hope for black people, for every, young people, for a lot of people, um, where everyone was was equal and would be treated equal. Everyone had a voice. And then, uh, you know, there was the Bay of Pigs where we, my father, you know, built a, sh- a bomb shelter during that time. We were all, you know, were training. We'd go down in the bomb shelter and we, you know, knew where the different foods were kept and how we would close the door. And, you know, we would do these practice sessions with the bomb shelter because we really thought this, this is, this is it. This is going to happen now. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a war with Russia. So, um, so there were these things, and then watching um, Kennedy die. I mean, I was in Connecticut and went to New York that weekend that he, he was killed. And on the streets of New York, there was not a single person for three days. Everybody in the country went through that collectively. And that was tremendously riveting, but also disturbing to a lot of the young psyche, where we watched a he- true hero be killed and mm-hmm. then there was Jack Ruby coming in and killing sure. Oswald and there was just like this time so I think all of those things played into a collective psychology of the young people coming of age where we decided a lot of us that we could not continue to behave the way we did as a culture and expect to survive not right. with the tools we have at hand. So that, that I think, you know, that and then having LSD around and, mm-hmm. and then having prophets who were misguided, but who at the time were very influence, influential, um, you know, saying uh, what Timothy Leary saying things like, when he was still professor at Harvard, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. saying that we can't go continue as we are, Mm -hmm. and that there are new horizons, just like when Columbus 
you know, came that we have to tread that may be dangerous. Some of us won't make it, but it's humanity's uh, way to, you know, survive ourselves that we could expand our consciousness. So though all these things were playing into this culture of very idealistic kids who were also very cynical, but new change had to happen. So that's pretty lofty, heavy stuff, even for uh, a seasoned adult to get their head around. That said, much less a troubled teen, and, right. and you know, right. and and you were going through, and and having known you as a friend and as a as a as a teacher, um, you know, you're the the sweetest, most gentle uh, person I know. Yet it sounds like you know you were something of a hellraiser to say it uh, lightly uh, yeah. in, in high school that you were very troubled. You were you were. Um, uh, there were drugs, there was addictions, there were mental instabilities. I mean, right. so you went through what, you know, a lot of teenagers go through, but you really went through it pretty hard. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. And so you're wrestling with these personal issues. You still have not been really formally introduced to transcendental meditation or no. to, to the, the Eastern uh, teachings. Right. Um, so you're finding, you're, you're slightly being introduced to these concepts as you're going, as you're kind of emerging from a really bad acid trip. I mean, you know, you, right. you did, you had a, yeah. you know, you had a horrifying right. experience and that's, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the moment you emerge from that terrible nightmare and you begin to think, I need to change things. Well, I mean, I knew that I needed to change things, but I didn't have the will Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't believe I could. Mm-hmm. But what happened so after... So how old are you at this point? You're... I'm 17 when I have that bad acid okay. trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but be, but behind me was, you know, when my father died, that first spiritual mm-hmm. experience, which was like an acid trip, but on the good side. Right. Um, and then, you know, the various other things. And so at that point, I realized, you know, for Catholics, if, their suicide is not an option. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I didn't have the Catholic faith, of course, I wouldn't have gone through that hell, but I would have gone through some hell. I would have killed myself. Mm-hmm. But but that isn't an option for us because that'll be even worse. Right. You know? So the only option is to get out of this thing. And um, after that trip, which was so severe... Um, somebody, as I say in the book, somebody put on, it was just this morning was dawning and somebody put on, um, Ave Maria, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And we usually play it at funerals, but Mm -hmm. in this case, um, it was very beautiful and the sun was coming up and, uh, that I could feel such, um, beauty gave me hope and, uh, and I remembered all the things I'd been taught, you know, that anybody, the greatest sinner, is a, there is salvation uh, mm-hmm. for them. So I I knew that the only way out was God, you know, it was to take a spiritual angle, drop all, you know, I was going to, I couldn't keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I couldn't keep going the way I was. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, that fear was my driving force because I didn't have the inner strength or will or belief in myself to do it myself. But that fear was going to make me go the other way, which was to clean up my act and try and gain salvation. So in in that sense, Catholicism certainly played a, a critical all the you know, way role. Through. All the way all through. The way Good through. and bad. So how do you how do you today 
as someone who um, obviously uh, has practiced yoga your entire uh, adult life and transcendental meditation, something that uh, perhaps the more traditional devout Catholics might view as a a dangerous thing. How do you reconcile those things today? Are you still considering, do you still consider yourself a Catholic, uh, you know, or or has it evolved? Uh, It it would... What happened is, and I'll just quickly mention, is that I did go through what devout Catholics go through, which is, you know, where we're very fearful or careful to the extreme of anything outside of what we already, what is our religion. Mm -hmm. And so when I, you know, started TM, which is such a powerful technique and, and so amazing, Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to study with Marishi. You know, mm-hmm. with the ma- you know the mm-hmm. the person who really knew about this stuff, um, and I was not accepted on the course. Then I went for a miracle. I went to Lourdes mm-hmm. as a Catholic, and I prayed there. And of course, the priests and people there told me I was worshiping the devil, as had had my mother, mm-hmm. and um, and it didn't bother me because I had felt, uh, you know, I'd had intuitive connection when I started TM that this was the right thing but as the questions came in more and I began to you know maybe doubt myself I then thought you know yeah this would be perfect just perfect in keeping with who I am that I go to the sacred place sit in it and worship the devil you know that would that would be right up my alley so so then I began to think you know that's probably what I'm doing and so I went, you know, to confession and the priest said, this is absolutely what you're doing. You go back in that grotto and you pray for your salvation. Well, I went back in the grotto and I thought, well, I'm going to pray f- just to know from Mary's here, you know, God's mm-hmm. here. So let me just have, I don't need a big miracle, but some kind of sign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and that's in the book, but mm-hmm. um, get a sign that it it was a good thing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's different than the religion, but it doesn't mean, I mean, different in the sense that the religion doesn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, not different in the sense of the the connection, the sacred connection I've felt before I meditated and feel in much stronger uh, ways when I meditated, it was the same. So it's hard. Now that we're raised, it's like somebody being raised in New York City with kids who are from, you know, first generation from India and China and these different cultures who practice their religions and you're around them, you see they're good. And you, so it breaks down these, these boundaries that we set up you know, with what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard to say, oh, these are devil worshipers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's this, it's that exposure. And so I, I think, anyway, after that, I, I, I felt I was doing the right thing. I felt it was blessed. And it was just now a, a matter of it happening for me to go and study with Maharishi in India. Before we get to that, um, and before we get to how the song Dear Prudence uh, uh, came about, um, I want to delve a little bit more into TM, which is Transcendental Meditation. Um, And you are a teacher here in Seagrove uh, and and really renowned worldwide for for your teachings. Um, 
and my wife is a yoga teacher, and we're, right. we're both Catholic. And so a few years ago when she gave me as a Christmas gift, uh, uh, she gave me a series of, of TM lessons from you, and, and it was absolutely wonderful. But I had no idea what to expect, you know, and I really think I expected it to be more spiritual than it was, meaning transcendental meditation, or, or we'll just refer to it as TM from, from here forward. But that said, it really isn't necessarily – about religion or spirituality, That's right. That's it right. is a relaxation technique and a, and a way to calm your mind. Is that an, an accurate? Well, th- yes, that's accurate. I, I would go further to say that in all of us as human beings, uh, there's a, a, a part of ourselves that's um, deep within the mind that's silent. And that it, when you connect with that, uh, it's very relaxing mm. but it's also very fulfilling and it, it what it does is it stabilizes the mind it's what we would call we feel it a little bit when we're centered only it's stronger than that it helps us be more centered and more connected we talk about oh that person's much more connected than these people they're out of touch but what we're talking about is that deeper part of ourselves that's not a philosophy you know religion or anything like that it's a human Part of ourselves, just like an emotion or something, but it's it's deeper and it underlies everything. That that is what yoga. I mean, yoga was a series of practices brought out by what we would call sages long ago in the Himalayas, and it was they were brought out for the good of mankind as tools that we can use to to become wiser to become more more developed as human beings and because a lot of our the things that we we consider normal uh you know such as be- violence and uh you know anger and fear yes we have them to a, a degree but the degree that we most of us have them is out of proportion and that comes from that lack of where the mind is not as deep and as connected as it can be. Mm-hmm. And when it becomes deeper, then a person becomes more relaxed inside and outside, and they're more in touch. So they're much more comfortable with themselves and less dangerous to themselves and other people, less mm-hmm. threatened. Mm-hmm. So at this kind of coming of age where you're emerging from the terrible teens and you're you're being connected to eastern philosophies and to yoga and to uh the notions of transcendental meditation um you finally uh, the gypsy um uh comes to you uh more or less and you find yourself in india yes. you find yourself in india for the first time tell me about those first sensations and your sister mia was with you right. uh, was she dating frank sinatra at the time or was she already she married? was had been married to him and he had he had basically was divorcing her. Okay, so you're together in, in India for the first time. Tell me, I mean, I, I went there a few years ago myself. I can only imagine what it was like in the mid 1960s. That's right. It's, I mean, it's tell me. really changed now by comparison. Okay, so in what ways? And tell um, me about well, your experience. Well, I mean, I, first my time. first experience was I felt like I had been dropped in a time machine to the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Time, I did never thought of time as relative. Until that moment, mm. time was different. They didn't go by the clock. Mm-hmm. They were more still coming out of an agricultural um, 
uh, they were an agricultural mm-hmm. country, and and even the cities, even now, but especially then, you know, there were horses, cows, sure. uh, bullocks, you know, all of these different things, uh, camels and elephants, and and the people in the cities were not dressed like us. Now, anywhere you go in the world, people dress like us, mm-hmm. but at that time they weren't. You know, they wore beautiful saris, mm-hmm. and the men were in what we call pajamas. Mm-hmm. That's where the word pajama comes from, mm-hmm. in these cotton, loose pants and shirts. And so it, they, it was very foreign and very different, almost frightening, because it was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, it really mm-hmm. was like being dropped. And it wasn't like you could—it was far away. You, you know, you couldn't just pick up a phone or go on the computer or anything like that. There weren't— access to those things except in the very expensive hotel you could go to make a phone call maybe get through Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you were really when we were there we were really far away from home from Mm -hmm. our culture Mm -hmm. and then um then from there we went to rishikesh and rishikesh is a center and it's become very commercial now but at that time it was just a little village but it was a place where the, the Ganges comes out of the Himalayas for the first time, and it comes rushing out, huge river, you know, just with a lot of force. And um, it's surrounded by uh, forests. And what the state, what, what India had done was give Maharishi or lease to him a little piece of land in the forest reserves. So we were in basic, they say forest, it was jungles. Right. <laughs> we right. were in the jungles. Aggressive of monkeys and oh, everything yeah, else. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we sure. were in the jungles of, of, uh, of India. And so not only were we far away and in this culture, but we, in the culture we were far away. So it was, it was very extreme. I mean, and, and, you know, it was like deciding, okay, I mean, in a way that some people could understand it. Maybe not, but uh, that you were taking like an an acid trip, which mm-hmm. is which takes you to another kind of plane for three or four months, basically. So when you then hear that the Beatles uh, are coming to the same place to study under the same uh, mentor and to study the same philosophies, you're actually slightly um, put off by that because yes, yes. Of, of your proximity to celebrityhood your entire life. And now you go out into the middle of nowhere to study and to learn more about yourself. And suddenly you find that John and George and Paul right. and these guys are coming in for, for a couple of months to, to study right. as well. So tell right. me about your, your reaction to that when you hear, heard that versus the reality of meeting them in person. Uh, well, I think I heard they were going beforehand mm-hmm. because, you know, now that I think about it, uh, because I mean, th- I think the reason Mia really probably made the decision to go, which was back in like November of '67, mm-hmm. and we left in the middle or end of January okay. uh, of '68 from Boston. Uh, she really ha- was. She had said, and she, she mentioned that the Beatles were going, and she wanted to go. Oh, but but of course, her interest came from our Catholic school, which I write about when we were in boarding school together. We shared a spiritual um, li- life and vision, and so you know, I had been telling her about this real saint. Uh, for a long time, 
And so, you know, it just fit right in for her to make this pilgrimage. But um, so I kind of knew they were coming. But when I heard while I was there, I mean, I, it didn't mean anything to me. Right. Uh, but when they um, heard they were coming then, like the... I guess I heard they were coming right the day they were coming. Mm. Because Marishi had sent me to pick up Mia in Delhi. And Mia uh, wanted to go pick up the Beatles. She knew mm. they were coming. Mm. I, I don't know how she knew and I didn't know, but she knew. So she wanted to go to meet them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I wanted to go straight back to Rishikesh. So I went straight back to Rishikesh. She went to the airport to meet them. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they came in several hours after I had arrived in Rishikesh. And they were st- we were all in the same block uh, of r- rooms that were like these little um, cottages that had lots of rooms. There were six of them. They were called Puris. And the celebrity Puri, which was Puri number one, where all the celebrities were put. Mm. And so the only ones taking the course were John and George, not the others. Mm. And so it was just John and George and their wives and the sister of the wife of um, George. So they came, and I heard them all coming, but I was doing my meditation, and I just decided to stay out of the fray because there was all this, you know, people, you know, a lot of noise. I describe it in the... In the book, and then um, I came out when it was silent, and mm-hmm. I thought it was safe to get out and go get food and get back in my room. <laughs> and it turns out John came out of his room at exactly the same time, and he walked right over to me. He was so friendly and open, and um, and uh, I was impressed mm-hmm. because one of the things that I saw with a lot of famous people is that fame goes to their heads Mm. and they feel they're sort of above the rest of us and so there's kind of this snootiness where they just want to be around other famous people and the rest of us are kind of invisible Mm -hmm. for the most part so they don't really make the effort to meet somebody who's not well known but the Beatles were not like that all four of them were not like that which is very unusual for people with a lot of fame and um, they, you know, Marishi said, we'll put you in a, your own dining hall so you don't have to have the people asking you questions or bothering you. And they said, no, we want to be with everybody else on the course. And and when they were offered the front row seats, they mm. wouldn't take them. They gave them to, you know, the older women and people like that mm. who could use those seats. So their their attitude was very different than what I had experienced in Hollywood with fame. And that was very impressive to me. So... Um they were obviously serious in their desire uh, to come that far and to spend that much time, you know, to, to practice uh, transcendental meditation and, and you know, uh, the, the other aspects of the philosophy. But you were apparently uh, a, a significant degree more serious. Right. And that, you know, uh, John later said that um, you, you all, it's almost like as, as if you were in a race to achieve, right. um, you know, enlightenment. Uh, enlightenment. And, and he said that if you had been in the West, uh, then they would have put you away. Uh, that, uh, that you were, you know, that you were so uh, focused on, right. on meditation and that you were uh, keeping to yourself and, and that at some point, the organizers of the uh, camp, for lack of a better word, um, asked him to help draw you out. Is that an accurate Well, what, what happened is that the way Marishi set up these long courses was 
he couldn't keep an eye, close eye on everybody. Mm-hmm. So he divided them into little what he called buddies system. Three or four people living in close proximity were buddies. Mm-hmm. And they'd look after each other. That was their responsibility. If one of them got dysentery or if one of them got depressed or, you know, different things. Because this was an, it was a time, it was a retreat and if you've ever, you know, as a Catholic, a retreat is an introspective time. Mm. And we were there doing long meditation. So there was people there who who were trying to overcome. There was a woman who was trying to overcome the death of her son. and She wasn't doing very well. And George went and would just go without anyone asking him or anything, sing to her mm. music. She didn't even know who he was. She mm. just thought he was someone playing guitar on the course and so there was this you know they were you know very much fit into uh you know people who cared in that sense so so before i got so extreme which i describe in the book so Mm -hmm. you understand what i was going through and why i was so extreme Mm -hmm. you know so very focused actually my focus where i didn't want to play sit around and listen to them playing music i'd rather meditate was going on in the other Puris, but not in the celebrity Puri. Mm-hmm. So that made me stand out in the beginning. But it is true that later I, I really did get extreme with so much meditation. And after that, Marishi learned that, you know, we break the meditation. We don't ever just sit endlessly meditate after that. But, um, and I discuss all of that. So, so John, I think we became friends because we were buddies. We would talk and things. And I talk about that where, you know, we, the three of us are put together and we discuss the lecture material, which we rarely did and just talked about things, you know, in our lives, what were we doing here? What brought us here? Things like that. And, um, and so when when I got so far out, I think it was, uh, they cared. You know, mm-hmm. I think he really mm-hmm. was disturbed by that. And so as they're leaving to return to their uh, life in, in England and, and, and to, to get back to their music writing, um, they tell you they've written a song about you. Um, right. Kind of almost, right. In, almost as they're, as they're walking out the door. Kind right, of right. Because they were walking out the door very suddenly. They didn't that morning know they'd be walking out the door. Mm. So that's how fast the walking out the door was. And so as they were leaving and they had packed up everything very fast, then um, I think John said to George, we should tell Prudence that we wrote this song. Mm -hmm. So I I think it was George that went back to tell me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have my glasses yet. Yeah. My glasses broke, and I could not see. I had like nine fifty, which is pretty, pretty bad eyes, nearsighted. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was I couldn't see George. So the way I dealt with not seeing, because I wouldn't always wear my glasses, was pretending so I didn't hear him. So finally, he just told. He was across the lecture hall trying to get my attention. <laughs> And then he just told, because he had to go, he said, right. please give this message to Prudence. Tell her we wrote this song about her. And so then months uh, later, you were in New York? 
In New York. Yeah. And the song comes out. Right. And you've been apprehensive about it because not everyone who's written about uh, necessarily comes across well right. uh, is, is portrayed. So you have no idea what's going to be said about you That's for all right. intents and purposes on what is certain to be uh, a, a profound album, you know, release. Right. So right. when you hear the song for the first time, describe that experience. Well, I hear the song for the first time, my mother buys the album. And um, she, it, we're having a family kind of reunion. So all of my brothers and sisters are there with their different, you know, girlfriends and, and boyfriends. Mm-hmm. And so we're all sitting in the living room in, in Central Park West, big apartment. And um, my mother puts, we, we're playing a game. We decide to play a game called Killer. Mm-hmm. And it's a game that was kind of played a lot in on the East Coast because in Boston people were playing it when I went there. And it's where uh, one person is the killer and nobody knows who it is. And the killer kills by winking at you. And then you wait 15 seconds and then you say, I'm dead. And you try and catch the killer killing people and then you, you, you know, you're saved and also the killer... He loses. Mm -hmm. So we were. We decided we would play the game, and my mother said, "Okay, while we're playing, let's listen to this album because I've just bought it uh, that the Beatles did." And so she put it on, and the first song is that first song. But then, "Dear Prudence" came, and she really planned it. Where she instead of just putting "Dear Prudence" right on, she Mm. did that because she was the killer. Mm. So she (laughs) went around the room. You know, saying this is pretty. This is a pretty song coming up. You know, it's very exciting. And nobody had heard it, including me. So when she came to me, it had already been playing several stanzas. And I looked up at her, and she said, "Isn't it beautiful?" And then she winked, <laughs> gotcha. and I was killed. But it was. But it, from the interior me, I was doing what you said. I was apprehensive in every line. It was like, oh, thank God, made it through that one. You know, they didn't say anything horrible. So that was kind of... And and John frequently said over the years that that, that was one of his favorite songs and, and that was one of the most important songs that they, that they wrote. Well, because they did it, John had learned from Donovan a special style of picking mm. in India. And Donovan had learned it from a gypsy because he had traveled with gypsies for a while. So it wasn't in our Western music Mm -hmm. until, you know, uh, Donovan got it and then he showed it to John. And so the background music, that's that picking. And I I imagine if you're a musician, you can see the differences Mm -hmm. and things. Mm -hmm. So fast forward years later, and um, you you studied at Berkeley. You've had three children and what four grandchildren, right? And um, today, uh, you you continue to teach transcendental meditation here right. in in Seagrove. And um, for uh, just on a side note, I, I can tell you, uh, you know, I took uh, meditation lessons from you and it is a life-changing thing you know it really isn't it doesn't require a lot of time um, it, it's something in fact that it's very self-contained I mean yes, it's, it's, yes. it's short periods of time but it does have a profound impact and um, for anyone who wants to find out more information about that you can visit prudencefbruns.com that's prudence the letter f b-r-u-n-s dot com um, the book is entitled Dear Prudence, the story behind the song. It's uh, just out, and it's available on Amazon.com. That said, um, 
all of these years later, you know, you kind of reflect on this. Why now? Why, 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 why is it now time to tell this story? Because you seem, from a, an outsider's uh, perspective, you seem to have been fairly reclusive your entire life in many ways, yes. which is indicative yes. of what the song is really about. Yeah. So why now at this stage do you very, feel like it's very time good to question. put this book out? Um, the reason is, is because um, of something that happened that kind of woke me up, where my grandson invited me to his high school to meet his friends. And when he first asked me, I said, you know, why would you want to bring your grandmother to meet your friends? Because I remember when I was a teenager, it would be the last person in the world I would (laughs) introduce to my friends. And he said, just do it, Grandma, just come. So I came, and I was like a superstar. Mm. And I went to the middle school and to the lower school, the same reaction. Um, where the, uh, they knew all the Beatles songs better than my peers when we were young. Um, and what it, what it showed me was that uh, the young people were, were part of their history and that what happened to us at that time was, was an important uh, event you know, where we, a, a large group of us, including the Beatles, the Beatles were our voice. That's why they were really so popular. I mean, their music was wonderful. But part of it was that they were also going through what a lot of us went through, which was with the drugs and everything, but ending up turning inward and finding the answers from the inside out. Happiness comes from the inside. So um, the, the, what that showed me with the kids here is that that voice is still listened to. It's still being heard. And it was an important voice. I mean, we maybe dropped the ball after we made that inward journey. You know, we kind of disbanded our collective effort and each went into the world. We had kids and jobs and it kind of slipped away. But the influence was still there. You know, we have the organic movement where people were all over the world, but especially in America, trying to be more conscious of the environment, of what they put in their bodies, of, you know, knowing that if we're going to change the world, we start with ourselves first. All of these things began then. And the book, what I realized is that uh, because they're still listening, and I'm a part of that because I'm Dear Prudence, that I I have a greater responsibility to explain what that was because I had been hearing over the years from my peers and from different people who would tell me, I know the real story behind <laughs> Dear Prudence, and I would hear these bizarre stories. Nobody knew the real story. So I thought, you know, it was part of a, I was very much a part of of many, you know, maybe a little bit more extreme, but still... You know, I was what everybody was going through and why they turned inward. So this is a story that needs to be told. So that's why I wrote the book. That That's the reason. Well, the story, again, is Dear Prudence, the story behind the song. Look on the webpage here, and we'll have links to the book. But more importantly, I really want to encourage anyone, and I can tell you firsthand, anyone who um, feels like uh, a sense of disconnectedness or a sense of uh, 
spiritual void or uh, or even just a, a very stressed out or or um, uh, anxiety uh, driven lifestyle that transcendental meditation is is super simple it's super accessible it's so um, shockingly easy and and wonderful um, and it really can be a life changer and to have prudence here in our community uh, the community of Seagrove and the community along uh, scenic highway 38 is just a is, a is a real gift and a real treasure certainly to spend time with her like this is a is is a rare opportunity um, but anyone can spend time with her and learn um, these philosophies but also learn just the simple techniques associated with transcendental meditation and and again we'll provide links on the site here so um, I also want to say if you can't start here if you're visiting it's all over the country all over the world it's taught mm-hmm. and uh, anyone who's been trained has been trained well so you can learn from them just as well as from me so go to tm www.tm.org Okay, thank you, dear Prudence, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Okay, thanks. 